Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Camleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. Welcome, welcome, welcome to season three of Wild for Scotland. This season has been a long time in the making and I'm so incredibly happy and proud to finally kick it off with our first story of the year. We're already knee deep into Scotland's year of stories, a year long celebration of literature, myths, folklore and stories from all over Scotland. Of course, we've always told stories here at Wild for Scotland, but I wanted this season to dig even deeper and really focus on stories that you've never heard before. And so we're doing things a little differently this year. After stories about islands and road trips, it's time to focus on the people of Scotland who make travelling here so special. Over the next 10 episodes or so, you'll hear from me, immersive stories like the ones you're used to, but you'll also hear from a range of guests, people who live and work all over Scotland, their stories and some of their favourite places around the country. We'll start today with a story from Scotland's capital. Edinburgh is a rich ground for stories, from gruesome tales set in the underground vaults to famous poets and writers who found inspiration all over the city. From the National Library of Scotland to the Storytelling Centre on the Royal Mile, there are countless places where you can learn about these stories. But if you ask me, there are few things as enjoyable as listening to stories about Edinburgh while you walk its streets. Guided tours are one of my favourite ways to learn about the places I visit, and the more specific the tour, the better. And so I find myself on a tour of Edinburgh's black history, a topic I hadn't really learned about before, but was very eager to hear more. My tour guide is Lisa Williams. You'll hear from her in today's story, 
and also in next week's interview. She launched the Black History Walks in Edinburgh in 2018, and I can honestly say that it's one of the best tours you can do in Edinburgh. Yes, these conversations are tough, but if you want to get a more complete picture of Scottish history, it's important to look at all the pieces. So let's enter the streets of Edinburgh for today's story. This is More To It. Let's play a game. I want you to think about Scottish history and write down, without thinking too much about it, what comes to your mind. Ready? Go. Okay, pens down. Let's see what we've got. The Jacobite Rebellion and the Battle of Culloden. Okay. Standing Stones and Viking Raids. Right. The Wars of Independence and Robert de Bruce. I see. What else? Maybe the Highland Clearances? Or the stories of St Columba? Or the Border Abbeys? Bits and pieces about Scottish castles? A little bit of Mary Queen of Scots? And a lot of William Wallace? But of course, there is more to it. What about Scotland's role in the British Empire? Or the mix of cultures that influenced Scottish identity? What about the role of women in society? Or Scotland's contribution? to abolition. Those are the kinds of stories that are often left out of the history books, the bus tours and the leaflets. Luckily though, there is a tour that is aiming to change that. It is a sunny day in March as I make my way from Waverley train station along Princess Street. To my left, I see the Scott Monument rising high above the gardens. The marble statue at the bottom of Sir Walter Scott and his dog is hiding behind a veil of sheets. But the columns and stone-carved statues above his head look fantastic in the sunshine. I turn to the right, walk up St David Street and eventually reach a large green square. At the edges, it is framed by opulent buildings and beautiful townhouses. The east side is dominated by the neoclassical façade of Dundas House, which now houses the Royal Bank of Scotland. In front of it stands a bronze statue of the Earl of Hopeton, and a few doors down, the former headquarters of the British Linen Bank. At the centre of the square, impossible to miss, stands a tall column, And at the top rests the statue of a man named Henry Dundas, also known as Lord Melville. This is where I meet Lisa Williams, a British Grenadian author, poet and researcher, founder of the Edinburgh Caribbean Association, and today, my tour guide. I say my, but I'm actually just one participant on a busy tour of about 15 people, ready to learn about Edinburgh's black history. After some introductions and an obligatory health and safety, Lisa dives right in and begins with the story of the Melville Monument. Right, so how many of you have been following the controversy the last couple of years? Yeah, some of you, right? Um, 
a lot of it revolves around 1792, a lot of the, the arguments. So basically, in a nutshell, of course these things are super complicated, but in a nutshell, you have people like William Wilberforce and allies really pushing for immediate abolition of the slave trade. Now, this has been happening for about You see, years. over the last decade or so, this statue on its towering column has rocked the boat of Scottish history quite a bit. Henry Dundas, you must know, was not only an MP representing Edinburgh and Lothian at the British Parliament, the Home Secretary and the first Secretary of State for War. He was also instrumental in deferring the abolition of the British slave trade. And because of this delay, half a million enslaved people from Africa crossed the Atlantic on British ships. For years, a committee discussed whether a plaque should be added to the monument explaining Dundas' role in this history and what wording should be used. In 2020, it was finally installed, first temporarily and a year later permanently at the base of the column. But one thing that is rarely talked about is the fact that the statue was already controversial at the time it was erected. You see... While Henry Dundas opposed the immediate end of the Atlantic slave trade, the number of abolitionists in Scotland was growing. Lisa tells us that Scotland was disproportionately involved in the abolition movement, and there was a lot of pushback from the local population. On top of that, Dundas was impeached for misappropriating public funds, and even though he was acquitted, he never held public office again. Erecting the statue ten years after his death was as controversial then as it is now. There are many stories written into the buildings and monuments of Edinburgh, the cobblestone streets, the hidden closes and gardens, the narrow lanes and the underground vaults that rest below the old town centre. Which of these stories are told is a matter of who tells them. Our walk continues along George Street which stretches between Melville Monument on St Andrew's Square and Charlotte Square, far in the distance. Beautiful buildings line the road on both sides. One of them looks like a Greek temple, built in the 18th century as the old Physicians' Hall. It is now home to a popular restaurant and event venue. But on the outside, it looks like you could travel back in time. At the far end of the street, I can just about see the green domed roof of the West Register House, which was built as a church, but has since been converted to a records office. George Street is easily one of Edinburgh's most opulent addresses. Once the list of residents must have read like the who is who of Edinburgh society, but today very few people actually live on this street. Instead, you'll find holiday apartments, shops and cafes, but since the pandemic, many of those have also disappeared. Nevertheless, this street is a feast for the senses. Traffic is slowly rolling past, and far in the distance, I can hear the ringing sounds of the Edinburgh tram. The pavements are bustling with tourists and shoppers, toppling over each other, on their way to the next bargain or the nearest attraction. From somewhere, the sweet scent of takeaway coffee is hitting my nostrils. 
We stop by a bench beneath a large tree. From here, we look up at a church, St. Andrew's and St. George's West, a congregation of the Church of Scotland. And with that, Lisa is right back in her element. She tells us about famous activists who spoke here in Edinburgh about resistance, equality and emancipation, about fairness and ethics and what is right. Among them were radical abolitionist Francis Wright, who founded a utopian commune for emancipated slaves in America. Ignatius Sancho, who was the first person of African descent to ever vote in a British election. And Frederick Douglass, who self-emancipated and fled to freedom in the disguise of a sailor. Here in Edinburgh, they were all well-received. People wanted to hear what they had to say. Women, in particular the ladies of Emancipation Society, welcomed them with open arms and supported their efforts for emancipation in any way they could. But of course, there were also people who looked at this differently. For every activist who saw abolition as the only ethical choice, there was a worker whose family depended on the economy resting on trade with the British colonies. It took years to unravel this complicated web, and it is still ongoing today as histories unfold. Our group is now back on busy Princess Street. For a while, we blend in with locals and visitors crowding the pavements. But then Lisa leads us through a low gate and down a stone path. To my right, there are two large churches, St John's and St Cuthbert's. And ahead through the trees, I can see the outline of Edinburgh Castle. But the view is not the reason why we're here. We're standing on a small terraced graveyard, the Peace Garden at St John's. Headstones line the outskirts of the wall, some taller than others. Lisa directs our attention to a small, red-speckled marble stone leaning against the wall. It's not much taller than knee height. Feel free to come down a little bit more if you want to, so you can hear. Okay, so, this is the gravestone that we're looking at. So it's quite hard to see the words on it, so that's why I haven't print this one out. So if we want to think about the main family plot here of a woman who was called Jessie McLean, married a, a McRae, who was an a important lawyer in Edinburgh. That's the family plot. And then we also have the gravestone here right next to them of a woman called Melvina Wells. And you can see probably, hopefully, a little bit better. Um, so Melvina Wells was somebody who was born on a plantation, a tiny island called Karakou, where I used to live, actually, for about five years. I know it really well. It's very close to Grenada and a heavy Scottish presence, particularly towards the end of the 18th century. Actually, two brothers, the McLean brothers from Scotland, John and George, were basically running that island pretty much between the, the two of them. So, Malvina actually grows up on a plantation. She is legally enslaved. Malvina Wells was born in 1804 on Karyaku, an island not far from Grenada. She was born enslaved and worked for a woman called Joanna Isabella McRae. As a young teenager, Malvina travelled to the UK, and at the time, the legal situation was very clear. 
As soon as her feet touched Scottish soil, she was a free woman. Nevertheless, she remained a servant for the Macrae family. Her name shows up on different lists and registers, and she lived at different addresses all over Newtown. But on the census of 1881, at the age of 75, she's still listed as the lady's maid to Joanna. Today, she is the only person known to be formerly enslaved and buried in Edinburgh. Her headstone lies right next to a taller stone marking the McRae's family grave, and the inscription reads, Malvina Wells, born in Cariacoo, West Indies, died at Edinburgh, 22nd April, 1887, aged 82 years. For upwards of 70 years, a faithful servant and friend in the family of Mrs. McRae, Edinburgh. Throughout the tour, Lisa tells us the stories of individuals like Malvina, while at the same time expanding our minds on the way we understand the overarching themes of history. Our walk continues through Princess Street Garden, up the mound and Lady Stairs Close, and down the Royal Mile. We walk past the statue of David Hume, made to look like an ancient Greek philosopher dressed in flowing robes and holding a stone tablet. As tourists walk by, they touch the exposed toes of his right foot, a superstitious practice to wish for good luck. Lisa doesn't dwell for long, but mentions a racist footnote Hume included in one of his texts about Scottish Enlightenment. We finish outside St Giles Cathedral. Lisa leaves us with a list of names of other people she thinks we should know about and whose names we can go and research ourselves. Sarah Parker Remond, Sellerstein Edwards, Marcus Garvey, and many more. There is more to Scottish history, and that's exactly what Lisa Williams tries to highlight on her tours. Scots have left their marks around the world, in good ways and in bad ways. When you look at a map of Jamaica, you'll find Scottish place names all over the island, Aberdeen, Dundee, Glasgow, Inverness, they're all there, even two Culloden's. Across the Caribbean, you'll notice this happens over and over again. There's an Arthur's seat on Barbados, a Glencoe in Trinidad and Tobago, and on Grenada, where Lisa is from, you can find a town called Dunfermline. On her tours, Lisa is trying to shine a light on this legacy, not as you might fear to point a finger or cause shame, It isn't about changing history or removing the things that we've learned. Rather, it is about acknowledging that what we believe to be historical facts are often one-sided stories. And our only way to move forward is to add as many sides to these stories as possible. That below the surface, there is more to it. I have a friend who's actually descended from Alvina's sister. He's a Grenadian historian who actually came to Edinburgh a few years ago and felt, again, very personally connected, quite an emotional journey to be here and actually by the gravestone of somebody who's related to as well. So these are how personal some of these stories, um, connections can be. Now, if we think about Melvina coming here as a 12 or 13-year-old, um, this, the, the girl in this picture here... Thank you.
enjoyed this story about the Black History Walks in Edinburgh. As you can see, Scotland is deeply connected to Africa and the Caribbean, and in order to understand Scottish history, it is important to look at these links. In this week's newsletter, I will share some links to resources, books and videos that can help you embark on this journey of learning and discovery. You can sign up via the link in the show notes. Now let's take a quick detour and hear a story about our sponsors. And we're back. Now it's time for the practical part of the show. Here are five travel tips for a city trip to Edinburgh. Tip number one, book a Black History Walk with Lisa Williams. The people I mentioned in today's stories barely scratch the surface of all the stories Lisa talks about on her tour. There is so much to learn and discover about Black Scottish history, and Lisa always adds new bits of information to the tour. I've done it twice now, and both times my mind was blown by the stories Lisa told us. The Black History Walks take place on weekends throughout the summer season, but Lisa is also available for private tours. You can find the booking link and her contact information in the show notes. Tip number two, treat yourself to afternoon tea at the Signet Library. At the Signet Library, you can enjoy a fancy afternoon tea surrounded by books. The library was actually used as a film location in Outlander, where it stood in for the Governor's Mansion in Jamaica. But even without that reference to Outlander or the Caribbean, this is one of my favourite places for afternoon tea in the city. And the tour actually finishes nearby. Tip number three. Head to the Collective Art Gallery on Carlton Hill. Collective is an art gallery at the City Observatory, which sits at the top of Carlton Hill. It is a relatively new museum, but already one of my favourites, because it highlights emerging artists and their work, many of whom are people who were traditionally excluded from public art spaces. I've seen some thought-provoking exhibitions there about racism, community activism and women's history, among others. Tip number four, get away from the crowds. The city centre of Edinburgh can be overwhelmingly busy, especially in the summer. One of my favourite places to escape the crowds when it gets too much is the Royal Botanic Garden between Stockbridge and Leith. It is home to one of the largest plant collections in the world. The glasshouses are currently closed for refurbishment as part of the Edinburgh Biome Project, but you can still visit the exterior parts of the garden. Tip number five, explore beyond the historic city centre. Many people who visit Edinburgh stick to the historic city centre. They visit the medieval old town and the Georgian new town. But if you ask me, it's really worth exploring the city beyond the centre. Go for a wander along the water of Leith, hop around coffee shops in Brunsfield or Stockbridge, or mingle with locals at the pubs of Leith. And with this, I send you off to plan your own trip to Edinburgh and continue to learn about its complicated and multifaceted history. Next week, Lisa Williams will be back to tell us her story. We'll hear about the path that led her to Scotland, when and why she started the Black History Walks, what she hopes people get out of them, and of course, I'll ask her about some of her favourite places in Scotland. I hope you'll tune in again. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. From the start, this has been an independently produced show and a passion project of mine, if you will. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to help us reach even more listeners, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts today. I love reading your feedback and reviews really help others find the show. 
Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Tarowskis, who's the co-producer and editor, and does the sound design. And to Michelle Payne, who helps with transcripts and social media. Podcast art is by Lizzie Wall Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland, and it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.